0: You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out RedeemingGracecc.com. Ants are absolutely wild. And I'm not talking about your mom's sister. I'm talking about the bugs. Although... I don't know your Aunt Dolores. She might be a bit of a firecracker, who am I to say? But for this morning, I'm talking specifically about the little bugs, six legs crawl all over the place, tried to eat Jonathan alive this morning while he was out blowing all the weeds away and everything. Those kind of ants are incredible. And we could just go through a list of all of the amazing things and honestly kind of horrifying things about how well ants work as a community. But I wanna focus on one thing in particular. The way that they communicate and so for instance as Jonathan I love it when God just gives you an illustration in the morning as Jonathan was out blowing off some of the debris from all of his hard work of cutting the grass yesterday he blew an ant pile and when he did they just ran all over his body in no particular direction just biting and gnawing and chewing until he finally got them all off if you see ants walking around on the sidewalk they can look a little bit disheveled and disinterested and all doing their own thing until they find food. And then, and you'll probably notice this in your own home, generally speaking, when they're in your house, it's because they have a mission and you'll see them all walking in this little trail. And it's because when one of them finds food, then he starts to leave behind a little pheromone trail for the others to follow. And they catch it with their little antenna. And then they start following it. There's this great story of Richard Feynman, this great man of science in the 20th century, who just at one point saw some ants on his bathtub and just watched them for hours. And then he put some sugar out on the ledge of his bathtub and one ant found it and then walked back. And then all of a sudden another ant came and it followed almost the exact same path. And then another, and then another, and then another, because it's left this trail now for all of his buddies to follow. And some researchers at Harvard did some studies on ants and their trails and they found some really interesting things. Because a lot of times we talk about ants as, you know, in all the fables, they're the really hard workers, the go-getters. And some of the ants were like that. Some of them marched with a lot of aggression and determination to get the food and go back. Some of them took their time and got there a little more slowly. Some of them wandered from the trail a little bit, but just kind of made their way there over time. And so there were some slacker ants and some go-getter ants. But they noticed that as they're watching the ants, when they did catch the trail, whether they're a slacker, slow ant or really aggressive go-getter ant, once they got on that trail, they began to move with a lot more determination, with a lot more vigor, because they knew where they were going. They had found the trail that they needed to follow, and they knew that the reward was at the end of that trail. We're a lot like ants. Because whether we like to believe it or not, all of us are followers by nature. Some of us may like to believe that we're not, but the reality is is we're all looking for something to follow. We're all looking for a direction in which we can go. And the world has figured this out right the world knows that everybody is looking for something to follow and so there are there are chemtrails everywhere there are little pheromone trails all over the place to try to lead us in a certain direction sometimes it's marketing sometimes it's temptation sometimes it's the course of education or a job we're looking for these trails and the world is providing all kinds of trails around us ready for us to follow i love james k smith's work on this i've referenced A lot of his information, a lot when it comes to these patterns. But both of his books here, Imagining the Kingdom and You Are What You Love, deal with the nature of following and how that can be both a good thing and a negative thing in the life of anyone, but especially followers of Jesus. He talks about our nature. He says to be human is to be on a quest, to live is to be embarked on a kind of unconscious journey toward a destination. Of your dreams. He then puts that in some spiritual perspective here, where he talks about how our idolatries will become those trails for us. He says our idolatries then are more liturgical than than theological. We'll get to that L word in a minute. Our most alluring idols are less intellectual inventions and more effective projections. They're the fruit of disordered wants, not just misunderstanding or ignorance. And the idea there is that we are looking for something, whether consciously or unconsciously, we are looking for and longing for something. And the object of that affection, the object of that desire, is going to set for us the path that we're going to follow. It's going to lead us down the trail. It's going to shape our lives and who we are. And that, because we do live in a world of idols and pheromone trails, and affections, and pathways, that's why we have the Sunday morning service. That's why we come together on Sundays to worship as the church. The Sunday morning service exists to provide for us a better trail. The Sunday morning service exists to give us a better shape and lead us toward a proper worship where when we come together on the first day of the week, right? That Sunday, we come together for the purpose of worshiping, to establish ourselves on a path, to remember where our affection should be, and then to send us out on Monday morning to be able to follow after that path as a follower of Jesus. And so that means that Sundays matter in the life of a follower of Jesus. But also what we do on Sundays matters in the life of the church. The problem is there's not a really detailed layout when it comes to scripture because in the New Testament, we see a hint, we see some whispers, we know the basics of what the church is supposed to do when we come together, but the New Testament prescription for worship isn't quite as detailed as temple worship in the Old Testament, where you had what you were supposed to wear, and how you were supposed to enter in, and how the sacrifices were supposed to be offered, and what kind of sacrifices were supposed to be offered when. In the New Testament, we see that freedom in Christ coming in, and the gospel radically shaping how Christians worship, but there's not a very descriptive and prescriptive step-by-step of when you come together on Sundays, here's what you do. When you come together to worship as a church, here's what you do at the beginning. Here's what you do next. Here's what you do next. Here's what you do next. And so that's why you can walk in to any church all around the world right now and probably see something that feels familiar. The basics will probably all be there. But then there's going to be a wide range of how that worship is practiced from place to place, from church to church. And as we think about the impact that Sundays have, these days and moments designed to shape who we are in the gospel and how we live Monday through Saturday, we also have to be very aware that something is going to shape our Sundays. And whatever shapes our Sundays is then in turn going to shape who we are, what we do, and how we live. And so you can see all over the place how Sundays are shaped, sometimes by the gospel, sometimes by scripture, sometimes by things that are not so scriptural. And it can be very easy for us to fall into the temptation of shaping our Sundays around our preferences or around our personalities, around the things that we like or around the places that we want to go and to warp and shift Sunday mornings into something that we can take ownership of that is going to send us on a trajectory that ultimately will have us living no different than the world around us. But as a church and as the church, we should long for, And desire and make sure that our worship is shaped by the gospel, which is the third of these core convictions that we're going to be talking about over these few weeks. Our worship as a church should always be shaped by the gospel. When we think about what's supposed to be accomplished on Sunday mornings, I think there are a few things that Scripture teaches us that are important when the church comes together. The first thing that should happen is that Yahweh should be glorified. The primary reason that we get together is to worship God as a church, to lift up the name of Jesus in spirit and truth, to proclaim the goodness of his spirit, to worship God with absolutely everything that we have. The second thing that should happen is that the church should be equipped. That we should be able to come in to church as believers in Christ, be encouraged by one another, be challenged by the gospel, be rebuked if necessary, come in and not only worship, but to be met with the confession and all of the things that we do, and then be sent out each and every Sunday better equipped for kingdom ministry than when we came in. Sunday morning is first and foremost for God, and second, it's for the church and the equipping Of the church. And then it's for the sake of evangelism. Because we do have unbelievers who walk into our churches each and every week. And so every single Sunday, the gospel should be present. And the gospel should be clearly articulated so that not only are followers of Jesus changed and shaped by the gospel each week, but if anyone happens to be in our midst who is not a follower of Jesus, then they would know clearly the power of the gospel. But those things should happen in that order. That primarily God is glorified and worshiped. Then that the church is strengthened and equipped, and then the evangelism happens. And so we can ask questions each and every Sunday to say, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing each and every week? Is our focus in the right place? Is our worship, in fact, shaped by the gospel? Each and every Sunday, we should be able to walk out of here and ask the question, was God prayed? Was the name of Jesus lifted up? Was the spirit magnified? Did we come together? And was Jesus the center of everything that we did? And was his worship, was glorifying his name the centerpiece of why we came together? If it's yes, then we did a good job there. If it's no, then we need to rethink where our affections are, who we're worshiping, and why we're even coming together. Then we need to ask, is the church equipped? Am I leaving here better prepared for gospel ministry than when I came in? Is our church being bolstered up for the purpose of kingdom growth and multiplication for the sake of Jesus Christ? Do I know Christ more? Do I know his word more? Am I empowered to ministry? Am I being sent out of this place to go and make disciples of all nations? If the answer is yes, then we're moving in the right direction. If the answer is no, then we need to ask some serious questions about why our church isn't growing in wisdom and isn't growing in the giftedness to be on call and on mission for the gospel. And then we need to ask, is the gospel proclaimed? Was the good news that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, echoing off the walls of our church? Do we teach and believe? Are we proclaiming that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Are we calling for repentance into belief for the sake of salvation? If the answer is no, then we need to make sure that we do not leave this place without the gospel being proclaimed in word and in deed. These are the things that are priorities. These are the things that are important as the church comes together. And so we need to ask, how do these priorities then shape our worship together? And how does our service then shape us? And if you've, well, you've all been to Redeeming Grace at least a few times, And maybe you've asked these questions about why we worship the way we worship or why we have different elements in our service. Maybe it's something that you feel deeply rooted in. Maybe it's something that you're still trying to figure out. But as we worship together as a church on Sunday mornings, it's our desire that all of these things would be done. And so our service has a very distinct shape and character to it. Or if you want to use the big word, our service has a very distinct liturgy to it. Now, depending on your background, depending on where you've come from or your faith journey, the word liturgy could either be something that brings you great joy and comfort. It could be something that maybe brings you a bit of fear or disdain or discomfort. Or you could hear that word and think, and have no idea what I'm talking about. In fact, it's entirely possible that you could have been coming to redeeming grace for a long time and not known exactly what that word means, you just know we worship in a certain way. And the reality is the word liturgy is not that scary of a word, and every church has one. At its core, a liturgy is just an order of worship for a church service. And so whether a church has a robust Sunday with all sorts of elements and bells and whistles and all those kind of things, or a church just comes in, sings a few songs, a pastor preaches a message, and then everybody leaves, every church has a liturgy. Every church has an order to the way they do things. But not every church is liturgical. One of those words that we've kind of adapted and changed and put a proper meaning to and capitalized it a little bit. And so generally, when you think of a liturgical church or a church with a more liturgical worship, you think of a worship practice that is a bit more robust, that there are a lot of different elements and parts to the service that are all in a very clear direction. A lot of times, many of these elements are repetitious. Many of these elements come from pre-written services or standards or creeds, and all of these things are incorporated into the Sunday morning worship service. And at Redeeming Grace, since the very beginning, this has been one of the things that has been a marker in our worship and our practice. It doesn't mean we're the most liturgical church in the world. You can go down the street and find churches that are far more liturgical. You can find churches that are far less. But we've decided from the very beginning that we wanted our worship service to be structured in a way that just points to Jesus in every aspect. And we also want to be tied in to a form of historical worship that reminds us that we're not alone, but that we belong to the bigger church throughout the years. And so from the very beginning, from our very first worship services together, we began adding in different elements. For us, it started with just a simple call to worship and a benediction. And then we added in things like our confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, a confession of faith. We added in our prayer times, taking and borrowing some things from other denominations and traditions, making some things that were our own, taking some things that were historical, taking some things that were new until we got to the point where we are now, where we worship as we worship now. And so we can ask the question, why do we do this? And we should ask the question, why do we do this? And we should ask this question Often, because if we ever find ourselves, like we talked about last week, if we ever find ourselves doing something as a church just for the sake of doing it or adding something to our worship or our practice and not asking why, there's a problem there. Because again, we have a purpose as the church and everything that we do should have intention and should have purpose and should be founded on the beauty of the gospel and the truth of scripture. So why do we worship the way that we worship? Why do we have these things every single week? Why do we have the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon? Why do we have the prayer time? Why do we have a confession of faith? Why do we take communion every single week? Why do we sing the doxology and pray the Lord's prayer? Why do we have calls to worship and benedictions? Why do we have all of the scripture readings throughout the service? And why does our service kind of look the same each and every week, barring some different songs and a different sermon? Well, I have some alliteration for you this morning. You're welcome. The first is we worship this way because it provides focus. So if you're catching on, we're going to have a few F's coming here. It gives us focus. If you have spoken to me for any particular time, which you all have, I'm sorry, you may find that it is a bit easy for me to lose my focus. (laughs) And I've spoken to a lot of you and it's easy for a lot of you to lose your focus and you can hear all the reports and studies about how our attention span is just dramatically shrinking and how that's even more exponentially true in the lives of children as we're so used to having everything on an instant, as we're so used to being catered to by algorithms and scrolling and we can have everything we want in a moment and then we can change our minds instantaneously. We are very easily distracted. But at the end of the day, we're here to worship Jesus. But even as we come together as a church, it can be easy to be distracted. We got a couple hours in the same space together each every week, but a couple hours is like an eternity to people with attention spans like ours. And so it can be easy to be distracted and start to focus on other things and think about other things and doing other things. And so the shape of our worship service is designed to constantly remind us of the gospel to constantly refocus us back to jesus and so the call to worship starts us off as we all come in at different times and we all kind of talk through things and we hang out and catch up and all those good things we do before a sunday morning worship service when the service starts the first words of our service come from Scripture. So there is a grabbing of our attention with the call to worship to remind us that God is the center point of what we're doing, that his word is the foundation on which we stand and our attention is called to Yahweh from the very beginning. And then we sing a song and then we read scripture and we say a prayer, and then we read scripture again, and then we sing a song, and then we confess our faith, and then we hear scripture in our assurance of pardon, and then we sing a couple songs, and then we hear the sermon text, and then we hear the preaching of the word, and then we come to the table, and then we sing, and then before we leave, God has the final word in the benediction. And so this service is designed to constantly grab our attentions and our affections. If you come in from just a horrific week, you are reminded that for the next hour and a half, all of that stops because your focus is on God. If you come in feeling very puffed up and proud of all that you were able to accomplish this week and you come in wanting to make much of yourself, then you come in and you're reminded from the very beginning, no, this is about Jesus. If we sing a song that you don't really like and it kind of takes you out of the mood, then the scripture brings you back in so that we can focus and remember that this is about Jesus. There is not a moment in our service that is not designed to push us back constantly to an affection for God, to the beauty of scripture, and to amplify the gospel. And this makes sure that we don't miss anything. Because no matter what else is going on, because we got a lot of kids, So it can be easy for maybe you to be distracted and miss a song or miss a reading, but then guess what? There's another one coming. There can be times when you're just thrown off and you're caught in your thoughts and then you're pushed back to the idea that no, Jesus is central to everything that we're doing. We could come together and my sermon could just be a giant stink bomb, but guess what? It's not reliant on me and the wisdom that I'm able to bring to anything because throughout the rest of our service, we have scripture echoing throughout our walls. We could come in and the music could fall to pieces and the sound system stop working and everything that could go wrong goes wrong. And yet we are time and time again pushed back to Jesus. So it's not based on me or my giftedness. It's not based on us and what we're able to accomplish or all the things going in the exact right way or everything going to plan. It's not based on my mood or my emotion or my desires or my distractions. Everything that we do is meant to call us back to a focus of who matters, why he matters, and what he's calling us to do. So the liturgy helps us focus. It also gives us, F number two, familiarity. We become familiar with the way that we worship. I genuinely believe, and I think we have objective evidence of this, that repetition leads to participation. And if you don't believe me, when we come to some of these elements that we repeat week after week after week, just be quiet. In fact, every single one of the adults in the room could be quiet. And you know what you would hear? The kids. You'd hear the kids quoting the confession of sin. You'd hear the kids saying the Lord's Prayer. You'd hear the tiniest of our little children singing the doxology. Sometimes you can hear them even when they're over there. The doxology starts and they just start singing. Why? Because they know it. And that familiarity is an invitation for our kids to participate. The word liturgy, when it's broken down, essentially means the work of the people. But it's so dangerous in the church because we have made church into the work of the professionals. And you are going to hear me harp on this a lot, but the liturgy puts it back in the hands of the people. It's not just about the people who know what's coming. Because if I choose a new song and Shane chooses a new song and we come in on Sunday mornings and we're going to lead this new song, then I'll know the song, right? Or Shane will know the song. But you probably don't know the song. And so you got to do a little bit of catching up, right? But the things that are constant, the things that are repetitious, the things that are familiar are invitational. There's such a a desire in church to want to be innovative. There's such a desire in the church to always want to do something new. And this isn't, ironically enough, it's not new. In just a few minutes, I'm going to talk about something that C.S. Lewis said in his book, Letters to Malcolm. But before he gets to the point that I'm going to reference deeply, he also talked about the danger of novelty in the church service. And so even almost a hundred years ago, there was still that desire and that push to make something new and to constantly be innovating. But here's the problem. If we are pushing towards newness all of the time, and if every Sunday we have new songs and every Sunday there's new things and every Sunday there's something radically different than when people come into the church service, everybody's playing catch up. Before anybody can worship, they have to learn, and they have to figure it out, and they have to break it all down. And oftentimes, by the time they get caught up, they already have felt left behind. But the purpose of the liturgy is to make sure that in the family of God, that no one is left behind, that there is an invitation for every single person to participate in the worship service, to be reminded that every single voice matters. From the members of the church, to the children, to the leaders, to even visitors, our worship is meant to be congregational. And the structure of our service helps to ensure that. I talk all the time about this when we do make reference to how we worship. My hope and my desire is that if somebody visits our church for the first time, there will be a little bit of confusion, right? Anytime you walk into a new place, you gotta learn how things go. But by week two, they'll start to see the pattern. By week three, maybe they even remember some words. And by the next few weeks, as you come and are a part of the church, you'll learn and be expectant of the rhythms so that you can come in with that familiarity and be able to do what everyone else is doing with no one left out, with no one lost and distant, with every voice amplifying the name of Jesus. So we get focus, we get familiarity. And then number three, thought about thinking of a word that didn't start with f just to really mess you guys up but no it actually starts with f is freedom We get freedom now liturgical worship services have a bit of a reputation of being boring and dry and restrictive If we do the same things every week, isn't it going to get old? If we do the same things every week, isn't there no room for expression or joy? We're just going to get caught in this rhythm over and over and over again. And I will tell you, I have been in services that are highly liturgical, that are also dry and boring and lifeless and just repetitious for the sake of being repetitious. But let's go back to our friend C.S. Lewis. In Letters to Malcolm, and I love this example, and I've used it a lot, but here it is again. He talks about worship in the form of dancing. He says, when you're learning to dance, you're thinking about all of the steps. And if I was learning to dance, because I don't know how to dance, I would really be thinking about all of the steps. And not only would I be thinking about all the steps, but I would be very self-conscious about the fact that I'm thinking about all the steps. But when you're learning a dance you're thinking about step one goes here and step two goes here and step one goes and you can see i don't know how to do this but you're moving your feet and your body very much calculated trying to anticipate what comes next trying to remember everything that you're doing and c.s lewis says as long as you're thinking about the steps you're not dancing you're learning to dance and you don't start dancing until you stop thinking Once you've committed every step of the dance to muscle memory, once your body is able to just move in the way that it's supposed to move, when it's supposed to move, that's when you're able to truly dance. And in the same way, as long as we are learning to worship, it's really hard to worship. But once we commit worship to our muscle memory, once we commit it to our rhythms, once it becomes so familiar that it's deeply ingrained in who we are, then we're able to dance. Then we're able to worship. The first time that you read the confession of sin that we use each and every Sunday, you may be thinking about all of the words. And the second time, you're probably still trying to remember, oh wait, when's the part that we say I love my neighbor as myself? When's the part that we say the things I've done and things I haven't done? But once it all starts to come together, once it's committed to muscle memory, once it's committed to the spiritual rhythms that we're a part of, then all of a sudden we're not thinking about the words that we're saying. But as we're reading those words together, our hearts are confessing. As we confess our faith together through the Apostles' Creed, Once we learn these things, I'm shocked at how every time I say those words, something else grabs me as it leaves my mouth. And I can be left in awe of the fact that I believe in this church that God has created. I can be stopped by the reality that Christ is raised from the dead. And all of a sudden, these words that come out of my mouth every single week push my heart to worship, and I'm able to do so in freedom. And so here's the beautiful thing about our repetition is you know what's coming. You know what to be ready for. In fact, since we've been using the lectionary, not only do you know what's going to be happening, the only mystery is what songs are going to be chosen for that week. And so you can prepare to come into the house of God. You can be ready to come in for worship. And then when we all come and get together, we're not waiting to see what step comes next, but we can dance together as worshipers of Jesus. And so when we believe that our worship is shaped by the gospel and when we come so familiar with the way that we worship together, we can come in ready to dance in freedom, exalting the name of Jesus and celebrating the goodness of our God. And as we do those things, there is an expectant result each and every Sunday. One is that the full range of worship is expressed. That we don't just come together for the purpose of praise and praise alone, or that we don't come in. And honestly, this would be a church that would look a lot like me. It'd be a lot of minor chord songs and then a lot of confession, right? I seem to just really stay in mopey zone when it comes to worship. And so if it was a pattern of worship shaped after what I want, you guys would be really sad every single week. But we would have the confession, but also we have the prayer. We have scripture time and time again echoing off of our walls that we are worshiping God in what we hear. We're worshiping God in the way that we sing. We're worshiping God with our posture. We're worshiping God in our food. We're worshiping God together. We're worshiping God independently. That every expression of worship commanded to us in scripture is reflected in the nature of our liturgy and in the nature of our services. But not only that, because we are worshiping and expressing this wide range of worship to God every single week, we will also find that we experience a wide range of emotion experienced in response to the gospel. I'll give you a little behind-the-scenes secret. It's, it's very easy to invoke certain emotions, especially when it comes to music in the life of the church. And a lot of times we come in with a mentality of this is what worship should feel like. Maybe it's jumping up and down and celebrating or getting me. Maybe it's just everyone's on their face and really sad. But as we do all of these things, we're hit with the joy of knowing who God is because he's proclaimed in scripture time and time again. We find sadness and sorrow as we confess our sins and remember that we are prone to wonder and that we feel it. We have comfort as we experience the assurance of Christ Jesus. And we could go on and on and on, but the idea is that we experience God in all of these ways through our service. We worship God in all of these ways through our service, and we are going to be able to respond in a variety of ways over the course of the hour and a half that we have together. And so if you come in in a bad mood, then hopefully there's something in Jesus that puts you in a bit of a better mood. If you come in experiencing joy, then there's going to be something that reminds you that there is cause for mourning in the Christian life. And everything in between. And then we also expect that there is a result that when we leave, that the entire congregation is both sharpened and sharpens. That we are both equipped and edified, conflicted, confronted and rebuked, and that we do the same for each other. That when anyone comes in to worship at Redeeming Grace Community Church, that you will be radically impacted by the gospel, but also that you will radically impact with the gospel whether it's in coming and participating in a microphone or helping disciple our children or just standing in your seat and singing the good news of Jesus or confessing your sin next to someone else or confessing your faith loudly with your brothers and sisters in Christ or grabbing the hand of someone near you because they noticed that they came in just downtrodden and hurting and broken and grabbing them during the prayer time and praying over your brothers and sisters. We have the opportunity every Sunday to be both equal, Equipped and to equip, to both sharpen and to be sharpened as the church. And the shape of our service is meant to do that each and every week. Now, there are some warnings that we need to be careful of because repetition is helpful, but it can also be a bit dangerous because it is easy to say, Well, I know what's coming. And this is the time when we do this, and this is the time when we do this, and we come to the table, and we sit down, and we stand up, and it can be easy to just get lost in the momentum of those things. But Jesus says the greatest commandment is that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we need to be actively fighting to love Jesus through every element of our worship each and every Sunday. That means we have to remember the how and the why of what we're doing, and some of that falls on the leadership of the church, on me as the pastor, on on whoever's leading worship that week, on the elders of our church to be able to constantly stoke our church up to love and affection, but also part of that falls on each one of us as followers of Jesus to come in ready to fight against our desire to fall into rhythms and routines and just go through the motion, and with everything that we do, worship God in spirit and in truth. The other warning is that liturgy is not law, and this is something that honestly I struggle with a lot and something that has especially hit me the last couple weeks when we started, I was, started using the lectionary, what, in November of this year, at the beginning of Advent, we started using the Revised Common Lectionary to inform our passages of Scripture and also what sermon text is going to be used each week. I have really loved doing that and getting to have that as a part of our lifeblood as the church, But then when Michael and Shane and I sat down and we're talking about how we wanted to roll out these core convictions, and we came to the decision that it needed to be done on a Sunday morning, I was very uncomfortable because the lectionary had already become law. And the idea of not preaching rooted out of one single text is uh, uncomfortable for me. But also the fact that we had all of this planned out and now we're not doing what was planned out is hard to wrap my mind around. And so the lectionary, the liturgy is not law. And if we get together for a worship night and we just sing, that's worship. If we forget something or we change the structure of the service one day, that's, we can't be completely dependent on these rhythms for the sake of worship. They are a tool. They are a pathway. They are a trail meant to push us in the right direction. They must have really like that point. <laughs> And I know I know this is, I told you last week when I don't have a root text like this, we're going to go for a long time, but we're feeding you today, so hang tight because I do think we need to stop and take a moment to think about one other aspect of our worship, and a really important one, one that sometimes is so important that it just co-ops the entire word worship, right? because when you think about a Sunday morning service, a lot of times we divide it up into two sections. There's the worship time and then there's the sermon time. And that's not really how things work. Worship is everything we do together, but the music is a really important part of worship. And the songs that we sing are crucial. And I have, I'm not going to read them all because I told you I've gone very long, but I have just eight pages here of verses about singing things like make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth serve the Lord with gladness come into his presence with singing oh come let us sing to the Lord let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God you can see over and over and over again there are so many calls for the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to make singing a regular and primary part of the way that we worship God. In fact, we know in Zephaniah, I love this, it says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Our God sings and he calls us to sing to him and to make our praises known in the songs that we sing. And so singing is a crucial part of not just who we are on Sunday mornings, but should be a part of our regular life together as followers of Jesus. And when Paul talks about singing in both Ephesians and Colossians, he teaches us a little bit about the songs that we sing. In Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So there's the foundation, right? Our foundation is scripture. And so everything that we do is dedicated to the apostles' teaching. It's dedicated to the gospel. It's dedicated to scripture. And as the word of Christ dwells in us richly, then Paul tells us that we should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In Ephesians, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You can find arguments in a few different directions here on if Paul is giving us three classifications of songs or not. But I do think this language is really helpful in the way that we choose songs and in the songs that we sing as a church. We can look at Psalms as quite literally Psalms. Don't forget, our Bible is a songbook. And in the book of Psalms, we have so many songs that the people of God have been singing now for literally thousands of years. But the Bible doesn't just stop there. There are songs in the Bible from Genesis chapter 2 all the way to the end of Revelation. And so we can sing scripture together. If our foundation is scripture, and if our worship is shaped by the gospel, then the gospel and the word should be present in the songs that we sing. And how amazing is it that we can lift up the name of Jesus, that we can amplify our worship to God by singing his own words. And when we come together to sing as a church, we should be filling our minds, filling our hearts, and filling our lips with God's word. And it should be constantly present in the songs that we sing. Paul talks about hymns. And we could talk a lot about what defines or doesn't define a hymn from content or from musical composition. But I think the easiest way to think about hymns are these doctrinally rich very structured songs of worship. And hymns, particularly the traditional hymns of our faith, have had a really big impact in my life. Stephanie and I talk about this all the time. We were talking before the worship service. uh, Michael and Peter and Jonathan and I were talking about just the songs and the kind of songs that we sing. And one of the things that Stephanie and I have said that throughout our lives and from the different places from which we came, both of us feel very, strongly, that we were catechized by the hymns, that we were taught by the hymns, that my doctrine and my theology didn't come so much from sermons that I've heard or things that I read, but from the hymns in which I was raised, singing songs deeply rooted in biblical doctrine and in sound teaching. And these hymns that we sing, these more wordy, doctrinally rich and structured songs, are meant to both exalt and to equip. The songs that we sing disciple us as much as they express. And that's why part of the church's role is to gatekeep the songs we sing a little bit. Because the songs that we sing matter. And the things that we say together as a church matters. And I think there should be real fear in using songs that either express something contrary to scripture or express nothing at all and deeply rooting our people in our faith in songs that don't get us to the core of who we are because we are going to be shaped by the songs we sing and our children are going to be shaped by the songs that we sing. And so we need songs that are doctrinally rich, that express the beautiful truths of sound theology and good teaching, so that one, we can be sure that we are worshiping in a proper manner, but two, that we are equipping and teaching ourselves the good news of the gospel. Then Paul talks about spiritual songs. And there's a lot of openness and interpretation on what that means, because any song that we sing from worship is a spiritual song. But in the list of these passages of Scripture that talk about singing, the Psalms over and over and over again calls us to sing to the Lord a new song. And to lift up our voices and to sing from the depths of who we are. And so sometimes it's a nice balance to be able to sing these songs that are doctrinally rich and sound, to sing songs that exalt God with the word of God and then have songs that just allow us the space to just open up and just express our love and affection for God. And some of those are very new songs, but I think the doxology is a great example of one of those kind of songs where we just sing and shout, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Just lifting up the name of Jesus and expressing our affection and admiration for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The songs that we sing matter and shape us just as much as everything else that we do. And so we need to be sure that our songs match our foundation, match our ambition, and point us toward the worship of our King. So here's the thing, Sundays matter. Sundays matter a lot more than I think we give them credit, and I think especially over the last few decades, the importance of Sunday in the life of the Christian has been diminished and diminished and diminished, to the point where we've gotten to say, you know what, if I miss one, it's fine. I'll catch it on the live stream, I'll catch it on the podcast, or maybe I won't, because they're going to be doing the same thing next week. And so we've devalued the importance of the church gathering together for the purpose of worship. And so we need to realize that Sundays matter, that this is what sets us on mission for the rest of the week. But also we have to understand and be very clear that what we do on Sundays matters, and it matters a lot. So when we come together to worship, we come to be shaped by the gospel together. We come to proclaim the gospel together. And most importantly, we come to lift high the name of Jesus and we come to do that together. And so let's make that a priority and keep that a priority in the life of our church that we would come together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we would set the trail through scripture for ourselves to follow for the rest of the week as we're sent out into our lives through the benediction. And let's come together each and every Sunday and worship together and be shaped by the gospel and shape one another by the gospel. Let's come together and dance in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And let's be sure that as a church, as Redeeming Grace Community Church, that our worship is shaped by the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, there is no other name that we want to lift up when we come together but yours. There's no other affection that we want to have. There's no other path that we want to walk. God, there is something beautiful and supernatural about when your church comes together for worship. So forgive us for how we can often devalue that or take it lightly. God, we pray that you would keep us so firmly fixed on the object of our affection on who you are, on what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, on the invitation you've given us through your spirit to come boldly before your throne of grace. And that we would have purpose and meaning in everything that we do as we gather together as the church. That your word would be both our foundation and our driving force. That we would worship you with every possible expression that you've given us. And that everything that we do from start to finish would glorify your name, would strengthen and equip your church, and would proclaim the gospel both in this room and lead us to do that as we leave and go with the commandment to make disciples of all nations. As we prepare to come to the table as both an act of worship, an act of communion, and an act of need as we come to you looking for strength. We pray that you would bind us together as one family, as one church, that you would remind us of our unity with the church all over the world gathering together today, and that you would remind us of the gospel, that Christ was broken and bled and died for us so that we could be your sons and your daughters. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.